You know, 1,500 years ago when we recorded last, uh, really kind of felt bogged down by the uh, the weight of the cults. I don't know about you guys. I've been here in this room every week <laughs> for the last 10 weeks. Just waiting on waiting. us. Waiting. I thought I missed an appointment, but... You're just Where were you? Waiting like in a cell for suddenly, you know, your 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 brain cells to grow back. Look, it's yeah. nice to have a reset every once in a while. We haven't had one of these long breaks since. I mean, what, this like is the two l- years into the show. I was gonna say this is the longest break since that move from UCO to Norman. Yeah, it really is. I think. Oh yeah. I mean, okay. that the patch where I was gone for a few months, but you two kept it up for a while. Right. I mean, yep. consistently. So. I think this is, as a group, the largest break we've had. In I think it probably is, you know. But ten years, you probably we've earned one. Not too bad. I, yeah. I kind of admire I'm why saying. the faculty of horror do it. Like, yeah, once a month. The season break's not a bad deal. No, no, no. Just because they take the summers off. Oh, that's right. That's right. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Because yeah, they follow the academic school year, which is of course, of course, because the they're geniuses. That's good. Uh, you see, that's just consistency yeah. in, in your concept. We but, have none of that. No, it is kind of nice. It so. is consistency of concept. Now there's an idea. <laughs> yeah, jeez. <laughs> If only. Uh, it's good to be back, though. You it know, is good it, to be back. I don't know about you guys. In the time gone, I, I spent a lot of time thinking about uh, what's good and what's not, and I realized it's, it's me that's not good sometimes. Well, <laughs> we could have told you that. <laughs> hey! Uh, see, I, I wish I hadn't said it now. Yeah, <laughs> I don't want you to agree with me. We're right back in our flow. We haven't yeah, missed a beat. Yeah, we haven't uh, missed a beat. And I'm just going with silence. Like I, I can't affirm nor deny what you're saying. Um, hello, everybody. <laughs> Welcome again to the Good Trash Honorcast. We are back, and we're so glad uh, to be talking with you all about the films you'll not discuss in a film studies course. My name is still Dustin. I'm still Arthur. I'm still Dalton Stewart. And uh, now you might be wondering, hey, I was promised a discussion of The Wicker Man. Sorry. When we take a long break, we're, we're not, we're not going to circle back and finish a marathon we didn't finish. That's dumb. By the way, watch that with my 14-year-old. He thought it was weird. I bet he did. Uh, when I, I didn't realize it was a musical before I watched it, uh, which is definitely... There's a, a lot of music. It is a musical. That's awesome. See, well, yeah. and I think off mic we've decided is we'll get there eventually. Yeah, we'll circle back yeah. and pick it up, but we'll probably make Dustin watch the uh, Nick Cage uh, remake <sighs> as well. Do, do something of a double episode. It'll be a good time. Cruelty. But, I think we're still sort of staying in the cult pocket a little bit, or at least the occult. That's right, because we're back with William Peter Blatty's The Exorcist 3, directed by the author of the novel and screenplay of the first film, ignoring the second film, and uh, doing all of that. So thank you, Brigham Cole. This is a Patreon pick, so thanks for that. We appreciate you so much, pal. And uh, this here is for you. Uh, in case you're tuning in the show for the very first time, though, we want to let you know this is not a review show. It is an analysis show. So if you don't know how Exodus 3 ends, um, because you hadn't seen it in 1990 when it came out. Or you fell asleep while watching it. Uh, which is possible for some uh this is going to be a spoilerific show but we'll avoid that for the first part of the show we'll have a synopsis uh i think that's how we do it we do a synopsis and then we do thumbs up thumbs down reviews that i think right. and mm-hmm. then after that i think we expand the syllabus so we might spoil some films in the orbit of this film and then finally we get down to business with some kicking music or something like that and all spoiler bets so i think at that point are off yeah is that how it happens that sounds like the rundown i don't think you've missed a beat that all sounds correct. Now, what's He's been this? rehearsing that every day for the last 10 I'm, weeks. Just looking into a mirror directly. Yeah. What's this expanding the syllabus business you're on about? We'll um, talk about it later. Okay. Okay, we'll talk more about it later. In fact, probably Arthur will. <laughs> <laughs> but without any further ado, at this point, Arthur will say something else. He'll say the synopsis of William Peter Blatty's The Exorcist Part 3. 
Set 15 years after the original, homicide detective and friend of Damien Karras, William Kinderman, is investigating a series of murders that are eerily reminiscent of the deceased Gemini killer. As his investigations go deeper, ghosts from the past are awakened, and Kinderman must determine what is real, what is fiction, who is Fabio, and what is beyond the human plane of existence. Fabio? Yeah, Fabio. Did you not catch Fabio in here? I missed Fabio you somewhere. Miss, oh, you miss you Fabio. missed Fabio. You, they've given and Patrick a... Ewing? Yeah. Uh, I miss Patrick Ewing entirely. Yeah, I don't know. I miss Patrick wow. Ewing as well. Uh, oh, really? I, I don't know if I'd recognize him. I know his name, but yeah. But no, Fabio gets like a close-up in everything. Yeah, so uh, Ewing. Oh, Ewing does as well? Okay, yeah. Yeah, that makes sense. All right. Well, there you go. Uh, this clearly memorable movie will be our uh, topic of discussion here for the next few minutes. So let's. Uh, I think we're all newbies to this one. Yes. Even though it's a 90, uh, 1990s yep. horror film, I did not catch it either. So I'm going to go to you first, Dalton. Mm. Thumbs up, thumbs down. What do you think of Exorcist Part 3? Well, you know, The Exorcist 3 and I obviously have something in common, being our uh, our date of being released into the world. Yeah. Uh, also, our interest in uh, the occult and in m- murders. Uh, yeah. I, yeah, so this movie's in my wheelhouse, is what I'm saying. It's doing a lot of things that I like. Uh, it's weird, in doing prep for the show, there's kind of a, a resurgence in popularity for this right now. Like, it's, mm-hmm. there's, there's people are talking about The uh, the Exorcist 3 right now. There's There's YouTube's essays and and podcasts plural uh so this is kind of having a moment uh which i think is fun you know when we get to a a lesser known or sort of underseen film or a delayed sequel a lot of the time there's not a lot of discourse around it yet Mm -hmm. so it's it's, it was fun to find out you know doing research that okay other people have gotten to this other people are re-exploring this um i liked it a lot uh i was vaguely aware of it uh because believe it or not, before this was chosen to be a, a film for us, uh, it was just something I was curious about. I wanted to know what happens in The Exorcist Part 3. So I did know the plot of the film going in uh, because I got very curious. Uh, and also, you know, I knew that there was famously a pseudo director's cut out there somewhere. So I was doing some homework on whether or not I should pursue that. Um, so, yeah, I, I got to be very aware of what goes on in this movie without really knowing what it gets up to. And that's a fun way to experience a film for me anyway. Um, the control Blatty has here, I think, is really spectacular. And it, it's very clear, the studio meddling, when you get to the third. And the third act of this is really sweaty uh, and not particularly good, which is unfortunate because I think the preceding two-thirds of the movie are really, really something special. Um, but anyway, uh, the, the kind of tonal incongruity aside between the last third and, and what precedes it... I. I'm very interested, and I'm sure we'll talk more about this later in the show, but I'm I'm interested in Blatty's choices as far as how to depict violence. Uh, He, I'm going to say, I'm going to put it gently and say he's not exactly timid about putting his characters through grisly, upsetting deaths. He is, however, I think very reserved as far as what he shows. He makes a very active choice to not ever show a crime scene uh, and at, but describes them in very explicit detail, which I think is, it's a move, if nothing else. Uh, I can see why the studio didn't like what he turned in. I'm sure they were hoping for something a little bit more gory, which is, of course, we get in the third act. Um, that's a little studio mandate there. Mm-hmm. But I, I know I, I did struggle with the the degree <laughs> of brutality being described in the film, because it truly does feel a bit much at times. Uh, especially, you know, one of them, we're describing a child murder at one point. Like, it's it's pretty gnarly. Uh, it is weird, though, that this film, you know, comes out sort of in the waning years of the satanic panic. 
uh, and yet predates sort of the, you know, one of the more notable uh, examples of that era of American history, you know, having harm, right? So this this film predates the West Memphis Three case, but is after the McMurray preschool stuff. Uh, so it's, I don't know, historically speaking, I think it's very interesting where it fits just in a groove of uh, American discourse around crime, around uh, morality, uh, around social taboos. Uh, and, and the film kind of clearly states that at the very least, it's interested in these things up top, right? Somebody uh, makes a comment about everything being relative. Uh, by somebody, I mean, uh, what's his doodle from uh, Grounded for Life? Uh, oh, who's got this? Yeah. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Uh, community. He's got a bunch of, uh, yeah. a couple episodes. Can't think of his name. Sky. Uh, yeah, when I saw Gary? him, I was like, is that? It was, yeah. Nikki something. It. I didn't. Uh, but it's anyway, Nikki something. Sean Coogan? No, that's not it. Nikki something. Uh, no, Kevin Corgan. Kevin Corgan. There, there we is. go. Anyway, Kevin Corgan shows up as an altar boy, and that's great. Uh, but he, he makes that comment about everything being relative, and uh, our our recast Father Dyer says, well, I don't know about that. Yeah. And uh, the film kind of proceeds to, I don't necessarily explore that, but at the very least, it, it, it wants you to be thinking about that. And I don't know. I think that's a choice. Um, it, it's interesting to to watch a movie with, no recurring actors from the uh, source material until you know late in the film we do get mm-hmm. Jason Miller back. Mm-hmm. Um, we'll not kind of discuss the exact nature of his return because uh, I don't know the, the first yet, half of this yeah. movie. Yeah, let's wait. The first half of this movie is very withholding on information from the audience, and I think that's that's pretty interesting. It didn't really take off for me until George C. Scott uh, as uh, Kindleman starts wondering how how far this goes. Mm-hmm. Um, I don't know how. Uh, Cobb would have done uh, if he had come back, Lee J. Cobb, yeah. who's great in you know the original Exorcist. But I, I like George C. Scott here, and I know Arthur, you're not wild about his performance. Uh, I, I look forward to hearing what you have to say. Uh, it's interesting to me that he got a, a Raspberry nomination for this. Uh, not that the, you know those those awards are fake, and okay, they're more fake than most awards. But Arthur uh, seems to be in agreement with the committee there. Uh, he does have a tendency to end scenes by just yelling at people, which is like, okay. I mean, that's it, right? Yeah, that's, that's, I mean, like, yes. Whereas, I mean, because you, you pointed out, like, nobody's phoning it in, and I 100% agree with you. He is not phoning it in, but I also don't know what movie he's in because he just randomly <laughs> yells at nurses who aren't even like, they're not even like antagonizing him. They're like, oh, uh, we don't have his charts. What do you mean? <laughs> I do. I, I think like it the is Twelve Angry Men version. Yeah. I think George C. Yeah. Scott is possessed <laughs> in this movie. It is. I don't know. It's. I, I. I think I know the choice. I think the choice is like he's getting more and more like angry at how uh, mysterious everything is, right? And how like potentially supernatural just things mad. are. But he's just mad at everybody. <laughs> yeah, he's just grumpy as hell. Like uh, obviously though, the big showstopper performance is Brad Dorif, who takes some yeah. dialogue that is like. <sighs> Pretty overwrought and turns it into something like truly spectacular. Fest, yeah, yeah, dude, like a a fucking masterclass on how to be a spooky guy in a movie, right? And I think you know, direction wise, I think you know, Blatty's not out of his depth here. He makes choices, right? Like he's only directed four movies, I think, and almost all of them are adaptations of his own work. Two of them are two. He did two adaptations of the same movie or the same novel, mm-hmm. uh, which I think is kind of an interesting career. But like, uh, I'm specifically thinking of. Uh, in one of the big set piece scenes with Brad Dorf, he does a tight close up on his mouth that is just like buck wild. Uh, so yeah, I don't know. This is this movie like a forgotten classic? No. Is it a forgotten masterpiece? No. Is it a forgotten gem? Hell yeah! I think this movie's pretty cool. Uh, it's got a lot to like. Uh, it's got stuff to not like, and I you know we'll get there. I, I'm more in, interested in saying the things I like about it though. Um, again, I, I do want to 
highlight just how sweaty that third act is. And, you know, uh, studio stuff aside, you know, what are you going to do about that? It still doesn't feel cohesive. Like, it just, you know, I presumably the ending is still not that different from where we get. I'm sure there's a little less uh, fanfare in the original cut. But, you know, I don't know. The, there is a... I'm going to try to be vague because, you know, I don't know how I assume this movie's underseen. I assume people haven't haven't caught up with this so yeah, in comparison be, to the yeah, original. Yeah. Exactly. So I do want to be a little vague, but there is a moment towards the third uh, final third of the film where uh, the case follows Kindleman home, let's mm. say. And I think from that moment onward, the movie is a little too damn silly for its own good. Uh, but I think everything leading up to that is great. There's some, there's a dream sequence in here that is completely out of nowhere and absolutely like inspired. Mm-hmm. I think it's great. I think it's great yeah. stuff, uh, and it's only foreshadowed by like a handful of kind of like, I would say like dreamy establishing montages, right? Like that's sort of the only heads up we get that this film might get like that out there and meditative. And you know, I appreciate that it goes there. Um, yeah, I, this it's just kind of a cinematic oddity. Uh, it's a great pick for this show. Uh, thanks, Brigham. You know, you kind of know our wheelhouse at this point. Uh, it seems like uh, you have for quite some time. Your picks are usually good, uh, but yeah, I'm excited for us to crack this one open. Kind of talk about its themes of, uh, you know, the the problem of evil in the world. Uh, you know, friendship as a, a thing to lean on in difficult times. All that stuff. I think thematically, there's there's good stuff for us to to get into. But it's just as a, as a piece of cinema, it's fun. Yeah, it's, it's a good horror movie. All right. Well, thank you very much for that, Mr. Dalton Stewart. Mr. Arthur Gordon, do you have a slightly different opinion? Oh, a little bit. Um, I, I, I'm not going to bash this movie. Um, I, I will preface this uh, a little bit by saying, I, yes, uh, I did doze off for a little bit. Uh, I did see the actual third act of the movie, though. Uh, but I did, I think, doze in and out for a few minutes I, hey, look, I towards took, that third act. I took a break and dicked around on TikTok yeah. for like 45 minutes at one so, point. Uh, it's kind of a boring movie in places. This, yeah. Uh, and I think that's coupled with expectations. I was expecting something much different than what this presents. And also, I was just worn out and exhausted. Um, I, I would like to give this movie another chance, I think, at some point. Um, but to Dalton's point about... Uh, this is really, to me, more of a curio uh, mm. than anything. Just, Just... Everything that it presents is very fascinating. I think in the same way that the you know the house is uh, in in or the room, sorry, uh, the way that the room is, um, just because the way it comes together, what it was supposed to be versus what it became versus what it is, uh, versus kind of the audience reaction to that, and I think there's just a lot of discourse there, you know, about authorship and studio intervention and those lines and and what that looks like and passion projects and fan reaction and how that can lead to rejuvenation. You know, I think there's a lot of discourse around this movie that you could really get into in a course. Um, I I don't think it's forgettable at all. Honestly, the the stuff I saw, the the, the hospital sequences are really cool. The, The set design is really good. Um, Oh my God. Thank you for mentioning the yeah. production design. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, it looks great it, in that regard. Yeah. Uh, the, the cell, uh, the jail cell that he goes to to see Prisoner X. Uh, all that looks really cool. Uh, that dream sequence, like you mentioned, that that's where uh, Fabio and Patrick Ewing show up. Okay. Um, they're just angels. Uh, yeah. Oh, is oh Ewing they are the, there among the angels. Okay. Yeah. Is Ewing just the angel next to Fabio? Uh, no, I think he's in another shot oh, okay. separately because gotcha. there's a really tight close up on Fabio. Yeah. And I think there's a couple more angels, and there's a shot of Patrick Ewing, <laughs> which I guess uh, Blatty's a huge fan of Georgetown, and I think Ewing played uh, was right it Georgetown, yeah. uh, which was why yeah. he was in it. Um, and so, yeah, I mean, but 
I guess there's a time thing there, right? Seeing those cameos in 1990 would have been a much different reaction than seeing them right now. Like, why is Patrick Ewing in this movie? It makes zero sense. I mean, it probably makes zero sense then, but he wasn't Patrick, you know, capital P, capital E. Yeah. Patrick Ewing then. But the I can't believe it's not butter ad campaign was out. Like, that existed in 1990. You know, I mean, so people knew who Fabio was, but like, so it's just kind of a weird cultural reference to put into this movie. I mean, it's jarring. He is angelic looking. I'll give him that. He does look great. Pre, is this pre roller coaster? This has to be. Um, Anyway, (laughs) doesn't matter. Uh, so, I mean, those moments, I mean, and the way the exorcism plays out is very memorable. I mean, it's very gory, very graphic, and then it, mm-hmm. Um, mm-hmm. some of the things that happen there are, are hard to watch. Uh, but to your point about this film's pacing, it feels so lackadaisical, and there's no urgency in the beginning that I wasn't really sure what was going on or where we were going. I knew he was a detective. I knew there had been a murder. But then there's a lot more impetus and, and weight given to the the relationship between him and the father, and that whole thing playing out, and they're just buddies wanting to go watch a movie together, and then it becomes another. You know, it goes back to being yep. a murder mystery. Like, there's no real sense of direction there. It's, it feels tonally all over the place. Uh, the the story never really finds its footing. I don't think until about the second act when mm. we really ramp up the investigation. I can see. I see. I kind of appreciated how how long it takes to get where it's going. Yeah. Right. But at the same time, I, I do agree with you. Like, as yeah. soon as the the mystery, the the case kind of takes over the the yeah. plot of the movie. The the film wakes up in a pretty yeah. big way. And I think that's it goes back to what I was mentioning about expectations, you know expecting from a studio horror film that things are gonna kind of ramp up pretty quickly mm-hmm. into what you're getting yourself into because the 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 murder at the beginning, like you said, it's never really graphic those sequences. It's emotionally intense though. Yeah, but so but there's not a lot of understanding of the importance or weight of what these moments are for these characters. And sure. and so that I think is what takes this song to really hook when there's more of a personal hook into the the investigation. Uh, like I already kind of talked about the George C. Scott thing. I, I I think these guys are all in, but I just think they're, you know, I think Dorf is, you know, that's uh, really a testament to his performance because uh, had that been another actor, it doesn't work as well. No. You know, no. and him just kind of chewing that scenery. Makes, I mean, George C. Scott, I think, was very into the script. He was very into what was going to happen. Rumor, I, from um, what my research showed, uh, apparently he had not seen The Exorcist. He yeah. just liked the script yeah. a lot. He yeah. Thought, yeah, he thought it was a great script. And and so that that's kind of the big thing here is I, I really would like to see, you know, what was Legion? Because it wasn't meant to be a sequel. It wasn't meant to be what it became. Uh, and, and so there's a really interesting what if there. And I think that's something that audiences are like prepared for now, right? Like, I think by now, yes, with the internet, you can kind of have that. Wait, and just, you know, shared universes and all this nonsense, yeah. right? Like, yeah. I, there's a universe where you put out Legion colon The Exorcist or whatever, right? Like, yeah, and it works. Le- yeah. yeah. William Peter Blatty's Legion is like. That's I mean, The really Conjuring nice. taught us that, right? Exactly. Yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah. Oh, The Nun. That was a thing. There's a whole Nun movie now. Boom. Yeah. You got it. So, anyway. Uh, so that I mean, it's it's a mess of a film, but I think it is interesting, uh, all things considered. Um, so that that's kind of, I have a hard time like objectively saying, subjectively saying this is I like it or don't like. It. I mean, it's an experience. I think more than anything. Sure. Yeah, mm-hmm. that makes that's sense. kind of where I'm at with it. I think it's not really something you want to sit and watch, but experiencing it is something of interest. Gotcha. Yeah, yeah, I get that. Yeah, curio. You said right at yeah, the top. Yeah, yeah, yeah. It seems accurate. Very good, very good. Well, um, what I would say in uh, review of the movie is I think it is fun. I think it's interesting. I do love the dream sequences. Um, I do love everything in the churches. Um, all of those choices I think are pretty good. Yeah, I'm a sucker um, for that stuff. Uh, I do think it is definitely a movie directed by a novelist. There, there's, there's a lot of talky talk, 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 and there's a lot of like 
you know, like bad Sorkin esque kind of speech making, you know, when uh, people George say exactly what they mean, right? Yeah, yeah. yeah. And it's, uh, it's, I'm thinking about that, like Shakespeare quotes dropped into sort of excoriating your. You're serving detectives as you're like a lieutenant detective, you know, in a murder thing and, you know, mm-hmm. keep dropping tomorrow and tomorrow and Macbeth and whatever into that. And that's a little much, you know, here and there. And, the, and then uh, as you talk about the uh, murders that we don't see, but we hear them describe again, that's, that, that's that novelist kind of thing coming in. It's mm-hmm. like the words are really what's powerful, not the images. And this is cinema. And so there are moments in which um, Blatty seems to have trouble struggling between his two different media uh, in, in communicating. It's yeah. interesting what he gets as a filmmaker, though, right? Yeah. Like the, the scene of the, the first victim's mother crying, right? Like, he, he understands, like, uh, the close-up on Brad Dorff's mouth, right? Like, he understands, mm-hmm. like, the visual is important in some places. But I think you're right. Like, there is a, a talkiness and a, a wordiness to this that, yeah comes across as very writerly. Yeah, uh, and I think that's kind of some places where it fails. It may be a little soggy in the middle, you know, as you guys sure. say, just before it finally does kind of wake up, as uh, I think Dalton said. I think about the, uh, if you're if you're looking for a timestamp of when the movie wakes back up, there is a pretty spooky image of an angel doing a Frankenstein walk at one point in, uh, in, the, in the hospital. And when you see that, I think, yeah, that's your, uh, the movie is awake again you're, point. You're, you're ready to do it now, yeah. yeah. And, but other than that, though, it, it's a lot of fun. Um, you do, I do find myself in this sort of weird brain space where I'm going, okay, this actor is that actor, and this actor is that actor, because we don't have any returns, uh, with the exception of Jason Miller. Gotcha. And so... It's a little it, tricky, it yeah. Is, it, you're like, oh, we're doing that guy, right? Do you like film? That's, okay, that's that guy. Okay, 10-4. Oh, that's that friend, uh, Priest. Okay, I, I remember now. Yeah, he played Camp Town Races or whatever. And so th- there's a... Th- that... D- that mental break with a film that I know very well that I've seen a lot of times does make uh, it a challenge on a first viewing. Now, once I'm kind of used to it, if I watch it again, it might not be the same. Uh, But that being said, uh, overall, though, I think it really works. Um, And I do, you know, again, though there are wordy places in it, he does strike an interesting image. You know, he does take advantage of that design and of lighting mm-hmm. and of fog and of a number of other, you know, just the, the ability to move the camera. He does some good stuff there. You know what, as you're describing like some of his, his flourishes, it does make me think about like a, a film where the director knows they might not get to make another one. Right. Like he's, he's trying to get a lot in here. It feels yeah, like. Yeah, for sure. So yeah, I, I generally am pretty warm towards it, but um, it is a fun, I'm glad I watched it. Mm-hmm. I'm glad I got to it. It is kind of neat, but no, this is my favorite movie of all time now nothing like that but um, i'm glad we're talking about it here for the show so let's keep talking about it shall we friends and let's expand the syllabus uh which a little thought exercise we do um arthur can you explain what expanding the syllabus is all about expanding the syllabus is a thought experiment wherein we the hosts assemble an academic course or module within a course based around the assigned viewing for the week and adjacent texts from books and articles to tangentially related films and stories that's exactly what it is thanks arthur well done wow well, it. Did you come prepared with a syllabus, my friend? I did. Oh, well, let's hear what that is. Yeah, I, I really want to get to the idea of... Uh, we've, we've got this story within the story here of the, the Gemini killer, who's obviously kind of influence of the Zodiac yeah, uh, and, serial killer. And, and Blatty's come out like that was is pretty straight up that that yeah. was an influence. Yeah, obvi- I mean, I think just that name alone I mean, yeah, kind it's, of lends it's itself to that. There. Isn't that what they named the serial killer in uh, Dirty Harry, too? I think so. Or was like Scorpio, yeah, yeah. maybe? Scorpio. 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 Um, so that, that's kind of what I want to focus on the impact of serial killers on pop culture, I think specifically the Zodiac. Uh, but I, I was kind of thinking about this, and I don't know that there are two more 
influential serial killers on cinema and pop culture than Ed Gein and the Zodiac. Yeah. I, as soon as you said, t- I knew Gein was going to be your other one. Yeah. I, I just like, I was like, yeah, it's Gein. Yeah. Um, and so I, I would probably just kind of have that discourse about like, these are the two branches and, and Ed Gein takes us into a very deep horror birth of the slasher type of idea. Whereas Zodiac has kind of taken us into these cerebral mysteries. And I think that underlying mystery of who is Zodiac has just driven that, that intrigues for so long, you know, and, and now that he's kind of become a meme, uh, with that uh, fellow from Texas, mm, uh, mm. he he's kind of has this renewed found life, and everybody knows the Zodiac, and yeah, that that mystery I think is just fascinating for people. Well, and there's right the the unknowability of Zodiac right keep prevents the God I can't believe this is the word I'm going to use, but the romanticization that I think we get of a Bundy sometimes, which yes, is really fucking gross if you ask me. I think uh, Elijah Wood is the only good Bundy casting that's ever happened. Did you guys see this? Uh-uh. No, uh, Elijah Wood's going to be playing Bundy, and oh, okay. so they're doing another Bundy movie. Okay. God. I, I know, I know. But Elijah Wood makes me go, okay, well, these people might get it. If they get that that's good casting, they might. Every, ever since he did, what's the uh, what's the character in Sin City that he plays? Oh, the yeah. The Yellow Man or something? The Is Yellow, yellow Bastard. Or, no, Kevin. I Is think it's just Kevin? Kevin. Okay, yeah, yeah, yeah. God, creepy. Yeah. Anyway. <laughs> yeah. But yeah, so that's where I'd focus. I'd start with the original. There there was an original, just the Zodiac Killer, which I think was sort of an exploitation thriller film uh, around that. And then I would go into Dirty Harry, which, which mm. isn't just uh, about... Influenced by the Zodiac, but it's really about the cop who chased the Zodiac yeah. and that kind of romanticization of the detective work and just the the character himself of Dirty Harry and what that led to with, with Eastwood's career. Um, I, I think that's just kind of an interesting play in time. And then I'd wrap that trifecta up with Zodiac, obviously David Fincher's work, uh, which is just one of the best uh, procedurals, his, one of his best movies, um, which really does kind of hone in on the pure terror of an unknowable killer Mm. that has no real rhyme or reason and real no who could it be like you know that 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 fear i think is is amped up in his film uh with features one of the scariest scenes i've ever seen put on 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 celluloid uh with digital yeah Um, yeah hmm. video card (laughs) yeah on on an sd card yeah uh and from there i want to kind of branch out a little bit and i want to talk about psych uh which featured uh the the comedy series for tbs usa Mm -hmm. uh which featured the yin yang killer uh kind of a comedic play there right with ali sheedy uh spoiler alert um but anyway fun guest casting yeah but uh just i mean and you could go down a list of, of tv shows and books and movies and and music uh where the zodiac's influence has been felt uh, and speaking to that, I think it was the seven. Uh, we got to go back to David Fincher, and I'd kind of go into these '90s and aughts murder mysteries that were heavily, I think, influenced with. Uh, we got the appearance of Seven. Uh, I'm thinking the Oxford Murders. Speaking of Elijah Wood, mm. um, where we kind of got a unknown killer, you know, committing murders, and they're trying to track it down. And then Suspect Zero, where we have a killer who leaves symbols at the crime scene or on the bodies. And then the other one is Angelina Jolie's Taking Lives. And just kind of this run, uh, obviously a lot of these are heavily influenced by Seven itself and, and that kind of in the spate of Fincher's uh, filmography there. But also, I mean, I think you directly tie that all back to Zodiac and this fascination with the serial killer and the way that has kind of shaped our media and especially now with the resurgence of the true crime documentary and po- uh, podcasts and, I mean, you know, billion dollar industry right now, uh, this this true crime is. Uh, and mm-hmm. I think it all goes back to the fascination with Gein and Zodiac. And, you know, maybe before that, you could talk about Jack the Ripper, who I think is probably the third. 
other one that you'd have to talk about. Sure. Yeah. Uh, because of just pure, I mean, nobody knows Jack the Ripper. Yeah. Um, and again, that kind of the unknowable facet there as well. I think that's, again, the fascination with him. Oh, absolutely. I, I mean, I think if you even want to expand it out of pop culture and look at influence on modern crime, I think you, you look at Jack, Jack the Ripper, right? Yeah. Like, I mean, yeah, him and Holmes plenty, Brody, of, but... plenty of murderers would cite him as an influence, yeah. unfortunately. Yeah. I think this movie, this movie gets that too, right? Like the, the serial killer as a uh, bad artist, right? As, uh, as, yeah. uh, what's the word I'm looking for here? Uh, underachiever, uh, who pastiche. Uh, yeah. Yeah. Somebody who's just incapable of original thought and yeah. thinking that, uh, posing a body is, is artistic. Yeah. Right. And they, they play around with that idea yeah. here in a way that I think is interesting. Yeah. Uh, I didn't expect Blatty to go there. Right. I, I, you know, I don't, I was, uh, I was born in 90. I don't know what the discourse around crime was. Yeah. Uh, other than the crime bill shit that happened shortly thereafter, yeah. and I think it'd have to be a note in this in this course to talk about how this was uh, the go to for uh, one Mr. Jeffrey Dahmer, sure, right, yeah. Yeah, as yeah. well, which is puts a whole nother level bonkers uh, onto this. So yeah. that's where I would go with this. So I think would just be really interrogating that the idea of of the Zodiac and his impact on or their impact on pop culture. Fascinating, fascinating. Thank you very much for that. Well, Dalton, what mm. syllabus have you prepared? Uh, we're going to be doing something called uh, Crime, Faith, and the Problem of Evil. Uh, I wanted to just do crime procedurals where the supernatural reared its head. Um, I felt a little too closed off, right? And there's honestly just there's less of that than I thought there would be. And, you know, some of the kind of notable examples like uh, Prophecy, uh, Dustin's beloved film that we'll get to someday. Um, that, you know, I, hadn't, I haven't seen that. And I know we'll probably talk about it on the show at some point. So I didn't want to do that. So I kind of expanded my reach to if the supernatural isn't explicitly in the film, uh, then questions of faith uh, are kind of foregrounded, uh, in, or not even foregrounded, um, centered uh, as one of the key themes, right? So I, I think films like Fallen, of course, which we've talked about on this show, uh, the Denzel movie, uh, which is a really spectacular film. It's great. Uh, yeah, Frailty. Um, these are going to be kind of uh, the cell um, these will be, yeah, the, the procedural thrillers where the supernatural or the, the fantastical actively entered the, the proceedings. Right. Uh, but I also want to look at, uh, speaking of, uh, Fincher, I want to look at seven. Uh, I want to look at primal fear, another nineties contemporary there. Nice. Um, and I, maybe a little bit of true detective, you know, probably not all, but maybe like the pilot, right? Like an episode or two, just to kind of look at these films, uh, and then show, uh, in conversation with each other. Right. Cause they all are crime procedurals, and yet they all are about something a little bit more ephemeral, right, than, than you know, humanities and humanity to one another. Uh, also, you know, we'll probably take a look at uh, old Vic Frankel's uh, Man's Search for Meaning. Uh, we'll look at a little bit at Just World Hypothesis. Uh, there's some good writing from uh, Melvin J. Lerner from the 60s, uh, studying the idea of, you know, things happening for a reason. Just He was a sociologist, kind of studied the, just that attitude and that belief, um, in, in the just world uh, idea of being. And I, I think that's really where we'll get to. I think the, the films are kind of more flavor here. This is probably going to be a more, you know, philosophy reading uh, and, you know, academic study reading uh, type class. Because I, I think what this allows us to do is, number one, examine the, you know, the pop culture role of cops as moral arbiters, right? Which I, I think is not that controversial to say is not the reality we live in. 
Um, you know, I don't need to get on my uh, anything resembling an ACAB soapbox today, but at the very least, I think we can agree that pop culture depictions of law enforcement are a different thing uh, than law enforcement. And while that impacts, you know, policy and, and impacts social attitudes, I think we can we can set a box up and go, okay, we're Columbo, uh, Hercule, uh, uh, Kentucky Fried um, James Bond. Th- these are movie detectives. They are not real people. They do not represent real law enforcement um, by any stretch of the imagination. And, and I, I think by examining these characters as fictional, although, you know, we'll, we'll probably have to deal with, um, oh, what's his name? the guy that you were talking about, um, the Zodiac detective that inspired Bullet and Dirty Harry. Yeah. I can't think of his name. Well, you know, we can talk about that. We can talk about, you know, LAPD and Dragnet. We can get into that stuff. But I think the more interesting thing here is to look at detectives in pop fiction and say, you know, what does this character tell us about society's morals, right? What Because so often in these, the the look of the, the detective haunted by the thing he's just seen, and it's like, oh, well, if the homicide detective thinks it's gross to look at, it must be terrible. And that is such a, a trope within, uh, you know, detective fiction, within mystery thrillers. Uh, I, I think it's interesting to, to look at kind of cop characters and then look at uh, the philosophy of whether or not we live in a good world uh, and, and look at, you know, again, that's a big part of why I wanted to bring in Primal Fear, right, is, you know, uh, religion is such a key component of that film. Uh, we could probably turn to something like Spotlight, too. I mean, mm-hmm. we, you know, I mean, that is still a procedural in its own right and is very much concerned with real world uh, terrors and real world evil. Um, and I, I think just framing the idea of you have to go looking for the truth and it might not always be what you want. It might be the wor- the worst case scenario might not even be close to how it might be so much worse than you're imagining it's going to be. Uh, and I think that's the case in a lot of the, both these stories uh, that are totally fictional and, you know, some of these other ones that are unfortunately very, very real. Um, I thought about throwing in the Fear Street trilogy, too, uh, just because I think it's doing some interesting things with, you know, uh, generational trauma. It's doing interesting things with class. Mm-hmm. Um, I haven't finished that out much, you know. People are talking about it right now. It's a buzzy property. I, I think there's a lot to like there. Um, but again, I, I think in, in a class where we're going to be, at the very least, talking about a lot of very gross movies, I don't necessarily think we need to watch all of them. But I, I think we need to talk about you know how we, as a uh, movie-going, uh, story-writing and story-consuming public, h- how do we reckon with exactly what Arthur was talking about. I think Arthur's class is very much in conversation with this as well. How do we unpack the these sort of... Uh, uh, primal fears, uh, uh, not to be too cheeky and too clever for my own good there, but like, you know, the things that go bump in the night are uh, sometimes real. And that's kind of a hard thing to square in your brain, especially if at the end of the day, you want to believe that people are inherently good, especially if you want to believe that, you know, people have each other's best interest at heart. Like you have to reckon with the fact that no, not, not everybody sometimes has <laughs> the exact opposite of what some people want. Um, I don't know. That's that's the framework of the class at any rate. Uh, hopefully it would uh, be good, uh, but you'd have to go to the world where that class is real to find out. Dustin, what do you want to talk about with The Exorcist 3? I think I want to talk about Catholic horror is what Hell I want yeah. to talk about. It's ripe ground, right? You know, and, and so obviously, you know, we got lots and lots of priests in this and in the... Uh, 
the prequels to this film. Um, I assume Exorcist 2's got a priest or two in it as well. I'm sure, you know, you can't really throw a film reel without hitting a priest on those sets. If look, if you got a yeah. if you got religion in your horror movie, you want a dude in a, in a what's it what's it called a frock? Oh uh, yeah, with a collar. Yeah, yeah, yeah. You definitely want him wearing that. So yeah. Uh, so thinking about that, um, I don't know how much this is. It's too much for a module and not enough for a class. Okay. At this point, so I think the Exorcist movies are an interesting uh, interplay of just the idea of uh, technological society comes a little short, right? You know, uh, Father Karras in the first film is like, psychology matters, psychology is a good thing. But also, there needs to be some kind of spiritual uh, healing as well. And then Maris and Karras sort of uh, form two sides of a coin there, and uh, which is interesting. Do you remember, Dustin, um, I, this is probably you know right around the time of the Council of Nicaea, uh, you and I and, uh, and Nick Sanford Nick drove Sanford. around did a bonus episode about yes, the extras. Yeah, yeah. We, uh, this is way back in the feed somewhere, listener, if you want to find it. Long time we, ago. We had a good conversation about this, right? right. This idea that this film, uh, the original Exorcist, rather, is trying very much to kind of square the scientific and the spiritual. Right. And I think that's interesting. I think there's another way in which that plays itself out in Exodus 3. It's, it's, again, procedural sort of detective work, but also you might need something else. And there might be more to it than just the solutions that we'd have with uh, standard sort of uh, secular institutions. And I think that's pretty interesting. Um, The next thing I want to talk about, I think, uh, would be the idea of religious... Uh, we're going to call it uh, suspicion, cynicism, conspiracy, and uh, the ways in which religious institutions may be keeping part of the truth from us or something like that. There might be more to it than we understand. Sure. Um, and so that's where you find yourself in your prophecy movies, where there's an extra chapter of the Book of Revelation, the pocket of an angel, and it gives some very, very important information that would have been handy to a known. Hey, look, the church did done pull an MK Ultra on a, a bunch of the early writings, you know? I mean, uh, they put a lot of that shit in the paper shredder, man. That's all I'm saying. Well, they didn't shred it, but they didn't put it in the book. But that, that's, you know, a, that's some, a, some people who wanted to argue something else got murdered along the yeah, way. Yeah, there, there, was, there was, I mean, there were bad behavior there on all around. Some we, heretic branding and whatnot, we, we, as yeah. often happens. Well, uh, so that I mean that's part of it. So I think that plays in well. Yeah. And then the same idea of those kinds of gospels, as you say, uh, bless the child and stigmata um, are two uh, yeah. also that late '90s, early aughts spate of supernatural horror. Yeah, films. There's a bunch of them in that realm, yeah. right? In the days, yeah, it just happened a bunch at that point. And so I think those films are really, really kind of interesting. Um, then I want to move into that sort of discussion of something uh, more conservative about uh, the theological constructs that these films use versus sort of a modernizing being a mistake, right? And so, you know, I, I think about that sort of is God dead, you know, uh, insert shot in Rosemary's Baby, even though I'm not going to use that particular film mm-hmm. uh, for this, because I think it's a little off the track for us. But I think that idea, and uh, one character is Father Callahan from uh, Salem's Lot, uh, the nice. novel, uh, and his sort of like, malaise at seeing that the only evil that's fought is systemic evil, and he's not against it. He's like, yeah, racism's bad, and poverty's bad, and we should be doing something about that, but shouldn't we, like, you know, be taking down, like, the strongholds of the evil one, or something like that? And then, of course, then it gets to, and it doesn't go so well. Um, and that's an interesting sort of interplay there. Weird priority for a priest to have. Yeah. God, you know, I hate all this inequality in society, but what about the vampires? <laughs> yeah, well, the, well, he didn't, he didn't know there were, but he's like, I want to fight the devil! And then he gets to, kind of, metaphorically 
relatively speaking. Um, so I think that's an interesting thing, and I think that's kind of where the Conjuring universe takes us, is that, you know, yes, we live in a contemporary society, and yes, we have moved past a lot of this sort of stuff, but there are other answers, right? There are other things going on, and this sort of backward pull uh, that you see uh, with maybe the second Conjuring film especially uh, that is looking towards that and looking again towards kind of theological answers uh, to solve those kinds of problems, which I think I do find to be kind of interesting and fascinating. Uh, then lastly, I want to talk about religious mania gone bad. Mm-hmm. Uh, and I think that's where David Fincher seven comes in sure. is mm-hmm. where religious obsession is self Catholic obsession with the seven deadly sins in this case uh, becomes kind of the fodder uh, for serial murder. And I think that is a good way to sort of play some of that out. Shoot, I think I'm just going to let you take over my class for a couple of weeks. <laughs> I think I think we got something, and then here. we can finish it out that way. Yeah, yeah, yeah exactly. It's like we, we can tag team it. So that's kind of what it would look like there. Uh, reading wise, I'm not sure what all I would pull at this point, but um, I, I think those uh, different uh, emphases, emphases that we find in those various films uh, might be a good way to move forward and trying to get a, a handle on what exactly Catholic horror is uh, as a cycle movement. As a subgenre. Yeah, yeah, something. So um, there you go, dear listener. Your syllabus just got much longer, but I believe now it's time for us to get down to business. That's right, dear listener, and that business is, as always, analysis. And now, all spoiler bets are off. Um, Jason Miller was not dead the whole time. No. Turns out Jason Miller has been alive for the last 15 years, and he's possessed by Brad Dorif, the Gemini killer who got the electric chair right as uh, Father Karras was getting thrown down those very, very iconic steps. So so my question is... So the exact same plot line of Child's Play. Mm-hmm. Yes, right. It's it's so funny that Brad Dorif is, <laughs> is it both? Is it yes? It makes a child he, out. He after says the child's word play, "child's right? play." He says this is child's yeah, play. Yeah, child's right. play is eighty six, eighty seven. Yeah, it's in the late eighties. Yeah, yeah, because the third one's like ninety three. Yeah. yeah, yeah. God, this well, is in so the military funny. school. Yeah. Can you imagine being Brad Dorif going in for the casting call on this? Like, am I gonna? Is this what's gonna happen in my career? <laughs> is this who I am? <laughs> is this my typecasting? He made it work. He, he really he's does. So good in this movie, yeah. y'all. Like, I can't. His monologues are, no offense to uh, the late uh, Mr. Blatty, are just really overwrought. I mean, and again, you know, they're overwrought in that, like, uh, the the way a murderer who takes themselves way too seriously, you know, I mean, if you've ever had the misfortune of reading or listening to any uh, interviews with murderers, they are uh, serial murderers specifically. They're pretty in love with themselves. Mm-hmm. And I think the film's dialogue captures that. But God, it's a bit much. He... Does but, he make a meal of it, though? Yes, he does. Uh, and it is great stuff. Like, he knows when to pause. He knows when to, like, regulate his energy. It's just, like, it's they're great monologues. It's it's really showy work. And, and the way they play with the, the voice sound, you know, they lower it a couple levels when the, the demon's speaking. But, you know, I just have, like, uh, a universe-in-universe continuity question okay, before we get into analysis. So, whatever demon that was possessing Reagan... Pazuzu. Pazuzu. Which is from the novel, yeah. And I think in Heretic, uh, the first Exorcist sequel. Yeah, there's a Pazuzu there. But that thing that goes into Father Karras when he says, take me instead, Mm -hmm. right? Mm -hmm. Um, That's not what is inside him now, because it's whatever was in Gemini that came into him, right? So the implication that I got was it's 
Pazuzu and Gemini in there because there's there's when Brad Dwarf has his monologues, he like alludes to there being so, another presence. I if I'm remembering right, right. Uh, so Pazuzu transcends space. He's sure. not localized. Uh, I, I mean, the the possession jumps around, right? Mm-hmm. We, we do know that, and I, that, I guess that's the the implication is, and of course, right the the reference to uh, we're legion for we're many. Uh, the, the, but uh, yeah, presu- presumably Pazuzu is taking the Gemini Killer out of Father Karis every night and dumping him in this catatonic woman uh, mm-hmm. to, so they she can exit the hospital and go do the murders. Okay, that's but, the implication I got. So it so but it uh, is a little it's a little so fuzzy. Gemini really was not demonically possessed. Brad Dourif was just a bad person doing yes. bad person things. Yes. But he That's was helpful. dying at the same time, and Demon said, hey, opportunity, let's take that spirit before it goes wherever it goes and bring it into this body that I now have. It's, some, which it's is, pretty busy plotting, <laughs> All, to say the least. Yeah, okay. Uh, and then, of course, escaping from the morgue and not really getting buried and all that, blah, blah, blah. That but, was a fun monologue. That part of the monologue's really funny to yeah. me. <laughs> <laughs> Laughing about killing the guy. Yoinks. God, it's it's good stuff. Okay, so I, I was just curious about that. Sure. That's just that's neither here nor there or anywhere. Yeah, it's worth addressing. It, it just is a thing. Well, let me ask you. We, I got two places we could start. Okay, uh, we can start with uh, horror sequels, which I, I feel like we probably talked about a little bit at some point. Um, but I, I think uh, the sequelization of horror stories specifically, I think, is interesting. Or uh, do we want to talk about why Catholicism is so spooky? Is is it just uh, Protestant uh, uh, discrimination. What's going on here? Uh, rather, uh, I like that. Let's let's save that one. I think there's more meat on that bone. Let's talk about the sequels first. Um, and I, I think part of the reason why sequelization happens so much in horror franchises is horror films themselves are pretty inexpensive to make. Sure. Oh yeah. Um, and yeah. They, when they hit, they turn a profit. Right. I want to see. So let's look at. So Exorcist Two: The Heretic made fourteen million on a. Th- Made thirty million on a fourteen million. That's thirty million worldwide. Oof. So barely, barely. Yeah, with budget. Its, yeah, Directed by John Borman, who I have a book of his I've used to teach classes. Interesting. Okay. Now, Exorcist Three did a little better at eleven million budget with forty-four million take. That's pretty good. It's not bad. But, but let's talk about the Exorcist, shall we? Uh, in case any of our listeners aren't aware of just like how colossal a hit this film was, because you know, obviously it's had cultural staying power. But like the the numbers on this movie are pretty astonishing. Budget of twelve million dollars. Yep. So equal to the other two, roughly. And, and you know that's pretty standard for studio films in the late seventies. Mm-hmm. Yeah, this is nineteen seventy five, right? Yeah, no seventy three. Mm-hmm. Seventy three. Uh, box office worldwide. Cum- I mean, this is cumulative up till now, so that would include, re-releases and everything. Yeah. Uh, but it's four hundred forty one million. Yeah, half a billion dollars almost. Now let's yeah. see. <laughs> and a lot what? of that is in its first run. That the right. movie just like everybody saw this movie. Let's mm-hmm. see the box office. There's here. documentaries about like the cultural impact of this film because people could not not stay away from it. Um, okay. Too many negatives there. The film earned sixty six point three million in distributors. Oh, it's Reynolds. Hang on. Um, I'm just at the time. Probably could figure it out, but I'm not going to try. We believe in you, my friend. Yeah, I've got the utmost confidence. Oh, maybe that's okay. Maybe that is distributors Reynolds is a weird way to phrase that. Uh, Sixty-six point three million during its theatrical release in seventy-four in the U.S. and Canada, mm. becoming okay. the second most popular film of that year behind The Sting, uh, which was wow. just ahead of it by two million dollars. So sixty-six million North America box, yeah, that's and huge. Warner's highest-grossing film of all time. 
Yeah, yeah, that makes the sense. film earned rentals of forty six million overseas for a worldwide total of one point or one hundred twelve million. Wow. In the 70s. Yeah. yeah that's and then the reissues bump that up to yeah. where it is today. Well, that's yeah, because they re release this every couple of years. And then in 2000, they very famously had the, the not director's cut, because uh, what's this? Uh, oh, my God. What freaking. Can, freaking. Thank you. Freaking doesn't like that version as much, but Blatty likes it better. To, uh, to, to put that into more modern money terms, it's probably around 1.8 billion. Wow. With that's inflation. That's crazy. Or, God. But I mean, the idea is simply though, it doesn't cost much to make them. You don't have to. Actors are mm-hmm. either on their way down, and so you get a uh, name with some weight, George C. Scott, uh, that you or on their way up, on the way up, Brad Dorf, Brad Dorf, yeah, or you know, and you or can well, cast char- or they're Brad Dorf, really character actor, character who can- actors who can put a great performance together. Yeah. But um, you know, you don't need uh, you know, a Nev Campbell again, not a huge actress. She was no. known for Party of Five when she went into Scream. Yeah. But you get those kind of characters or those kinds of actors, um, so you don't have to pay them as much. And the effects themselves are overwhelmingly practical. Yep. And uh, even, you know, in our CGI yeah. era, it, it's all very, very inexpensive to make, usually pretty close to single locations, a lot of yep. dark time shooting, which is cheaper Less- to cheaper to make cheaper to shoot dark scene than a uh, super bright scene yeah. yeah and so uh all of that works out together to be something relatively inexpensive and then when it does hit uh you have a fan base that's interested in this and you can deliver more of the same over and over and over again well and that, yeah. that gets us to the promise problem of diminishing returns though right mm-hmm. there is something intrinsic of, of horror the, the unknowability is what's scary and horror films tend to end with a, a an unveiling of some sort, right? We we know more coming out of the picture than we w- knew going in, right? There there has been a a reveal, there has been a mystery solved, and so a sequel either has to show the mystery to have more layers, mm-hmm. show the first movie to be wrong in some capacity, or just be a retread, right? And, and that is a pretty huge problem for horror sequels right. as a whole, I feel like. And, and the worst ones are the retreads, Of course, right. You know. And yeah. the best ones are the ones that find a way to do it Build. totally different. Like yeah. in Aliens, for instance, mm-hmm. right? Yeah. What, it, what if, but Marines, instead right. of uh, the working class people with guns. Right. Uh, or what's another good example? Uh, you see, and this is, uh, okay, uh, the, the Dawn uh, of the... Oh, the dead franchise. The dead franchise. (laughs) The Romeros. The Romeros, right. Each of those finds some new way to kind of expand the themes. Well, even like your uh, Friday the 13th, you know, your first one, you've got uh, Jason's mom, spoilers, and then you've got a work into Jason being the guy, and then you've got this sort of ongoing up through those first four films in the series of just this weekend of him continuing to stay alive. You know, that's why they missed it, right, at the end of those uh, second, third, and fourth film. Well, fourth film, he dies, dies. And then then retreads get bad. Five, it's not really Jason. Six, it's zombie Jason, but it's also kind of good because it's meta, right? Mm-hmm. And then off we go until we get to Cyborg Jason, well, yeah, okay. which is pretty do, tight. Do, 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 do. <laughs> yeah, uh, but there you go. Another example of a horror movie that went well. All right, what if he's uh, your your cool stepdad mm-hmm. <laughs> instead of trying to murder you? Yeah, I, yeah, it's it's hard though, right? Like there's. And there's a reason, like, the alien... I feel like the Aliens formula gets cribbed a lot, right? I think the Hills Have yeah. Eyes... I don't know about the original Hills Have Eyes sequel, but I know the the remakes and the early aughts, the, literally the same plot. They, mm-hmm. they bring in, like, the army to go into the cannibals mountain or whatever. Evil Dead 2 is another... Which is kind of a... You know, it kind of revisits the first one and then adds yeah. to it, which is yeah. kind of a... Sure. Different reboot, kind of... Reboot, reevaluation. Right. But, yeah. Uh, Scream 2. Yeah. But yeah, that, an expanding I mean, of those themes. Yeah, building right? the worlds. 
Uh, Gremlins 2, which really, I, I, I think it's much better than the first because it just leans into the Looney Tunes. It's so though. great. Right. Yeah, that movie's so good. Anarchy. Uh, Dr. Sleep. Sure. Oh, yeah. 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 Which, you know, it was fun. And that's an interesting sequel because we have one of those differences between the original source material in yep. King's novel and Kubrick's vision for the 1980 film. Mm-hmm. And uh, Flanagan finds a way to marry those two visions into a single sequel. Uh, and it's a tricky so, task. Yeah, it is a tricky task. So, yeah. I mean, it happens a lot, and I think that's part of the why there. Now, let's talk about why Catholics be so spooky. And why I, are they? Yeah, why are they so mysterious to us? Um, and I and I think as a you know, here we are, a, a group of people who have been raised more in the Protestant tradition than Catholic traditions. But yeah, I've got that uh, dad's a lapsed Catholic thing, right? Where yeah, I, I get to know. I get I get a little uh, some of the cheat codes, but that's all I know. Right, yeah. and, and I, I would say that the reason why Catholicism lends itself so well to horror there's a there's an initial reason is simply they're better at they're they're more visually interesting they do have really cool stuff yeah the the their buildings and the vestments the iconography all of that stuff and take it out of like the holy see of rome right like expand it to the the og church writ large right like Mm -hmm. the eastern orthodox church and the the north african church right right they all got cool buildings and cool stuff like it just looks like as you said it's it's not a bunch of people uh, in in khakis and jeans right. at, a, at a stadium seating. It's uh, yeah, it and looks then, cool. And, then, and I think age is another thing it plays into. There's an ancientness there that uh, they there's can also tap that into. whole thing, the Inquisition, pretty mm-hmm. spooky, and the the Black Plague, also pretty spooky. Uh, yeah, they are kind of there at uh, Europe's scariest moments. Right, and I think the uh, Protestant anxiety that it touches on is that Protestantism overwhelmingly sort of is without ritual, kind of sees that stuff as supernatural hoity-toity, mm-hmm. you know, kind of goofball stuff, and what if we really did need it after all? And I think that is something that Protestants do find so scary. Like, what if what if what we're doing isn't all that helpful when we really meet something truly, truly evil, you know? Which is kind of a weird copifying of the clergy, right? Especially within horror movies. Mm-hmm. I mean, that's, that's really where we get a lot of this. Oh, yeah, the, the supernatural police, yeah. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Super cops. Spooky cops. There's yes. actually, um, I think Skip Intro is the name of the YouTube channel. He's doing a copaganda series right now. We just did a one about spooky cops, you know, X Files, Supernatural, Buffy, X, so on and so forth. Yeah, uh, Fringe. That was the other one I was thinking mm-hmm. of. Uh, so this is like a pretty integral part of like the the mystery horror or the supernatural mystery subgenre, right? Is sort of this bleeding over between uh, law enforcement and the spiritual guidance, mm-hmm. uh, which is uh, problematic for a lot of reasons, yes. but also I think is is interesting as far as. The, the role of the clergy as, uh, you know, fictional super cops, I, I think is interesting because of the role of cops as moral arbiters, which I, I know I've talked about already. But there's a weird overlap there, right? When you start to uh, play a cop as somebody with some sort of spiritual other knowing or vice versa, a priest with some sort of uh, uh, vendetta against evil. You know, whatever the case may be, you can, you know, find your way to your, your uh, god cop. <laughs> We'll call him. Uh, we'll call this this archetype. Uh, you can find it there. Find it a couple different directions, but it's usually serving a pretty similar function, regardless of you know which comes first, right? Like I'm I'm, tr- I'm trying to think of examples that like would really show a contrast between a the the clergy character and the cop character who are still serving similar roles in the same story. Yeah, I'm and obviously sh- here we we get a little play on that. I think there's a there's a way in which the uh, dramatic points or the plot beats of these kinds of movies are very much cops procedural. It, it is a it's a story of apprehension and incarceration, right? Yeah. We're trying to apprehend is 
is this the guilty party? Is this the thing that we really want to have? So that's a procedural bit. Mm-hmm. And then exorcism itself, you know, whether it's a Patrick Wilson in a Conjuring movie or it's um, uh, Max von Sydow in the first exorcist film or whomever, uh, it is about casting this person into their prison, right? And so there is this sort of uh, punitive, punitive, judicial, uh, executive kind of function here. Uh, that we're seeing um, at work there. And so I think it it, it lends itself uh, to something that's creepy. And again, that, that can expand beyond. I mean, I, I, there's a great representation of a Protestant minister fighting vampires in From Dust Till Dawn. Harvey Keitel plays Ugh. a Baptist minister. You know, He's a mean, uh, he's mm-hmm. a mean motherfucking mm-hmm. servant of God. Well, yeah. yeah, I'm a mean mm-hmm. <laughs> servant of God, you know, which is very, very funny. Harvey Keitel's so good. In that movie. He's so good. But that kind of thing does happen. But sure. it, it, they're harder to find because it turns out when uh, there's any sort of Protestant involvement in those kinds of films, they do tend to be a little bit more preachy. They do tend to be, you know, your flywheel, whatever that silly company is that makes Facing the Giants. Oh, yeah, yeah, yeah. Whatever their name is. I forget now. Doesn't matter. I truly can't. Yeah, I cannot think of very many uh, movies where the the religious expert called in as, you know, a Methodist or whatever, yeah. right? Like, yeah. it, it was almost always a priest, like a Catholic priest. Like, I truly uh, there's the uh there's the one movie where gary or um, gary oldman plays a rabbi uh you know so there's you know uh, this is from a couple years ago i mm-hmm. think it's i think it's him the one with the birds hitting the windows no that... that's a different one i i was working at a movie theater when this came out so it's like 08 or 09 but there's a, a a jewish horror a jewish uh folklore adjacent horror movie from oh yeah the unborn that's it thank you arthur uh yeah the unborn is is a kind of a notable example of you know taking a uh, the the spooky others from Jewish folklore, but yeah, it's, mm. I, you can't. It's hard to think of one. Uh, yeah, and again, I think you're right. I think visually, it's just super interesting, and I think there is sort of a. I, I don't know. We are all we're talking pretty much exclusively right now about uh, Hollywood films, about American produced films, and I think uh, America's less scared to be mean to Catholics, probably, probably because there's just not that many of them, comparatively speaking. Anyway. Mm-hmm. Um, so yeah, I think they just know they can get away with it a little bit. Right. And I, and I think that is, you know, as a stock character, you can sort of use a priest, they can be good priest or bad priest and no, there's no real repercussions no. and there's nobody who's going to say much about what's going to happen there. As opposed to, you know, if I put, if I put a Methodist in my thing, you know, there's going to be a, a bit more backlash, even from non-Methodists who happen to just be yeah. Protestant of some stripe, you know, and that's different. You know, you've got your Ethan Hawks in First Reformed. But again, he is uh, one of the more high church versions of evangelicalism, yeah. and so he wears a collar. Yeah, and, and keeps... he's not fighting any demons. No. <laughs> Unfortunately, Personal. yeah, I would watch that version of the movie, uh, uh, of course. Man, I would watch Personal Ethan demons. fight well, vampires. I mean, Paul Schrader did do the uh, one of the two prequels to The Exorcist. Uh, so, What about the Velocipastor? Is he the... Catholic? He, I don't think he is. No. Is he? Yeah, you'll have to. What's the what denomination is the Velocipastor? I, I really do need to know. Um, I, there is sort of this, and it makes sense, right, for the clean morality of horror cinema. It, it makes sense to sort of equate uh, equate the clergy with law enforcement, and to equate law enforcement with uh, moral superiority, right? right? It is, unf- you know, we've, we talked about, um, you know, one of our more recent episodes in Midsummer. We did kind of talk about this sort of dicey relationship between the horror genre and mental health, right? There is a reading of The Exorcist 3 that is uh, not supernatural and does make Kindleman and the priest who assists him look like really bad dudes who just executed a mentally ill guy uh, in his cell. Right. Uh, So it is... 
don't know. It's I, I'm not trying to throw the movie under the bus, uh, I, but I think it's worth unpacking sort of this one, this dicey relationship between morality uh, and others that, that we see in The Exorcist 3 and in, you know, kind of horror cinema at large. Uh, I think, again, this just kind of ties to uh, the the question of your stock priest, right? Your 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 Van Helsing type, mm-hmm. uh, your Constantine type, uh, and again, as you said, Dustin, that priest can be a goody two shoes, like in John Carpenter's Vampires, or he can be, you know, a, a cool guy, right? Whatever that looks like to you. One thing I was just thinking about, and just kind of with the Protestant, is yeah, I mean, they do tend to think lend themselves more to the horror villain. Yeah, yeah, the cult sure. leader. Yeah, yeah, yeah. red state sacrament. Yeah, exactly. yeah, 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 okay. Right. Yeah. There's that kind of the revival charismatic figure, sure. Yeah. Mm-hmm. And I think there's a lot of that tied into just the uh I, I think around the the kind of, you know, Joel Steen and mm-hmm. Jimmy Swagger and Well, I would say I it's, go, not, it's, not, go... it's not so much a Joel Steen kind of character. It's always kind of a, a fundamentalist yeah, sure. sort yeah, of punching yeah. bag there, yeah. But Arthur, I think you make a good point. Like this is not a new There's like this like a rule Americana thing Big, where, yeah. where's the villain, you know, this I think Catholicism kind of has this higher level of yeah, it sits the on Catholic a church. Yeah, yeah Father yeah. Dyer seems to be really urbane and sophisticated, right? And so, Di- this this movie's funny. We haven't talked at all about how how jokey this movie is. Father Dyer got has some good lines. Yeah, he does. Uh, really, really enjoyed. Uh, what's the name of that actor? He's uh, uh, a well known older guy, Ed Flanders. Ed Flanders. Thank you. Uh, I really like him in this. <laughs> Not to be confused with Ned. Not of course his brother. Not, his yeah, <laughs> his evangelical brother. He's definitely a black sheep. <laughs> um, let's Funny. see. Uh, I'm going to look over. I know I've got some more I wanted to touch on. I'm really down this rabbit hole of non-Catholic Protestant heroes. Oh yeah, trying to figure out if there's a anything other than. I mean, you know, we've got Mel Gibson in Signs, which is weird because is, of his sort of hyper. It, Methodist? He's, uh, it seems like he's a, a uh, uh, maybe Episcopal. Like okay. he actually is a priest because yeah. they call him father. Yeah, yeah, that's what And it so they allow marriage, right? Yeah. That's the only way you can make those dots connect. But uh, yeah, it, it, it's interesting um, that it just doesn't happen very often. Um, that all being said, uh, I, I do wonder about the idea of the violence being used at the end. So, you know, um, Patton finally does kill Brad Dourif. Uh, Patton yeah, shoots General Chucky. General Patton kills Chucky. Kills yeah. Chucky at the end of this movie, which is yeah. great. Um, uh, but also this idea that there, there's a failing there on the priests. Like, a lot of these movies are all about how everyone does everything they can to do it their own way. And finally, you know, it's where the religious institution steps in and takes authority and gets the job done. That is not the case. It's really not the case. Film. It's yeah. not the case in the first Exorcist either, though, really, right? Like, the specialist gets murked mm-hmm. <laughs> the 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 unbelief the the priest struggling with his faith is the one that seals the deal right right uh which is uh, kind of the the big character arc of the exorcist here we have this priest who we know to be a true believer right we get this backstory on him that he he, he performed an exorcism in south america and his hair got turned white overnight right. or whatever but we get literally no scenes of him other than him just like sitting in a church uh girding his loins i guess uh, very much is uh you know the reshoots insert character uh they find ways to work him in that are fun but yeah he gets his face peeled off uh, right <laughs> it is the the gruesomely pa- gruesomely it is the power of detector detective kindleman's 44 that uh, exercises the demon at the end of the day which again uh, does kind of tie into uh 
one of the potential non-supernatural readings of this movie you could have. Right. I, I guess there's a sense in which Karis is able to take control. His own faith is able to overcome yeah. the evil that has sort of overcome him. Yeah. And so that gives the moment for George C. Scott to pull the trigger. Yeah. But, yeah, it, it's weird that it's it, it's Harry in a, in a different kind of way than we normally see in these kinds of movies. Is finally the priest gets in and gets it done. Is is not quite the way this works yeah, out. Yeah, I'm trying to think of example. I don't know. I just feel like there are a lot of examples of, of I wish I could pull more right now, but it feels like a pretty stock trope. Uh, not even, you know, necessarily a religious institution of the backup being ill-equipped to help you. Right, right. That's pretty standard horror movie stuff. The cops show up and get murdered get immediately. Wrecked. Yeah, right. yeah. So on and so forth. It just kind of depends on what the stakes or uh, flavor of your, your right. story. Right, or are. or a, a you know kind of a feeble priest might make it in. Right, an unbelieving sure. priest. You know, yeah. it's like, well, I'll do this thing to make you feel better. You know, not really doing anything. What do we think? What is William Peter Blatty? And of course, now we've entered the part of the show where I say, let's take this work of fiction and say what it means about the person who uh, made it, Mm. uh, who's got their name on it. What does William Peter Blatty think about violence and murder? Uh, Obviously, he is haunted in some capacity by the existence of the Zodiac Killer uh, to the extent that he wrote a novel and a movie about, uh, you know, trying to tie a, a real life, you know, serial killer to... Uh, a story involving possession. Um, clearly, he's working through some stuff here. Uh, is it kind of the same stuff that he's working through in the original Exorcist? Is it sort of a question of how do we reckon with evil in the world? I mean, I think maybe it is. I mean, there's some great speeches that George C. Scott gives, you know, about you know what he believes in there towards the end. Well, and he's positioned as the the big quotes here, good cop, right? right. Like he roasts his colleagues for making racist jokes. Yeah. Uh, you know, if publicly in front of everyone is a, is a big fan of shaming the dudes that report to him. Mm-hmm. So, like, he is throughout the film positioned as a moral authority. Right. And his big problem is that, you know, where is God when there's bad, right? Yeah. And uh, I, I do think that seems to be where Blatty is going now. I think it's a different set of questions in the first film and novel. But um, the questions here are... If there is one, fine, but then if God is doing something interventionist, why does he intervene all the time? Sure. Right. And I mean, it's a fundamental question of theodicy and has been for centuries oh, God, now. Yeah, yeah, we're not going to solve that today. Yeah, no. no. But um, that seems to be more what he's dealing with, and that violence itself is uh, an example of perhaps God sleeping at the switch. And mm-hmm. uh, is it or is it not that is the question. And is it more to it than just simply I made a choice to do a bad thing and cut somebody up? Or is there another supernatural force at work that motivates me? Does the, does the devil make me do it? Well, and there is, of course, because the devil is making somebody do it, right? There is a a deeper transgression in every murder, right? There's the, the racialized violence of the first murder. Uh, there is the kind of blasphemic uh, components of the murders of the clergy that happen, uh, the nurse, uh, so on. It's like, right, every murder uh, we hear about has some component of it that is deeply egregious, right? right? It is offensive to the sensibilities that it is being described. Uh, Whatever your stomach for that sort of thing in a movie, it is trying to be gross, Mm -hmm. right? Whether you think that's cool or turns you off is, you know, how you're wired. Uh, But I, I do think it's interesting that, like, he, he is compelled to, and again, we talked about how the movie is kind of writerly. Uh, he, he is compelled to make sure you know what happened and he wants you to think about it. And I think the best moment of that we get is uh, 
uh, Scott telling Flanders about the murder, you know, whether having their lunch date and like he has, he's asked if he wants coffee right after that. It's a whoo, it's a doozy of a scene. Mm-hmm. But I think that is kind of the thesis statement of uh, the the murder descriptions that we get. Like, I think that that scene right there is kind of writ large what he's trying to do with all those scenes almost. Right. Yeah. Which does make me wonder, like, what's the point? There, it's it's a little too gross for its own good at times, you know. Even before we get to the studio mandated, uh, you know, gory exorcism, he, he's kind of reveling in the grossness a little bit in a way that I'm not quite sure how to reckon with. Yeah, I'm not either, I, and I'm not sure it's representation for the sake of saying, "See how awful things are." Now, can we ask these questions? Yeah, but I want you to know how awful they are, right? Or if it's like. You know, there there is something we find fascinating by the horror, and yeah. I'm not sure if he's fascinated or if he's trying to repel us. Yeah, right, because at the end of the day, it's like, well, yeah, they're gross, but you wrote it, Blatty. Yeah. <laughs> You're the one who invented these murders. You tell me what it means. <laughs> right, and and he, do, he does kind of fail to do that, I think. But, you know, I, I think if his goal is to marry The Exorcist with a procedural thriller— uh, or, or rather, you know, The Exorcist already has those elements. Rather, if the goal was to take another pass at the characters of The Exorcist and bring those procedural elements to the forefront, I do think the film's a success in that regard, mm-hmm. more often than it's not. Right. Um, you know, I, I think that's good. I like I like it when movies take big swings, you know? For sure, for sure. And this movie definitely does swing big. But if that's it for our analysis, friends, uh, let's go ahead and move on to the last part of the show, in which we render a verdict. Uh, shelf or trash? What do you say for The Exorcist Part 3, Arthur? Mm, why'd you go to me first? Because I wanted to. I know. Um, the devil made me do it, actually. I am going to say trash, I think. Um, it's just where I land with it right now. I, I don't know that there's enough. Oh, maybe look up the dream sequence. Uh, just be, I mean, that's to me, that's the thing about this movie, right? I mean, especially watching it 31 years later. Um uh, and having these oddball cameos at the time, and you know what you know what that looks like today versus then. But anyway, yeah. Anyway, sorry. Uh, I, I think I have to put this in the trash uh, for me right now. All right, fair enough. What do you say, Dalton? Yeah, it's a very gentle trashing for me. It's free with ads on like four different streaming services. If you've got you a li- can find it, if you've got a library card, it's no ads on Hoopla. Like this movie is easy to get. Yeah, uh, it is as Arthur said, very nice. Like the, as soon as the font popped up, I was like, "Ooh, baby, that's a 1990 typeface." Uh, yeah, it is very much a relic of its time. Uh, in some ways, that are really interesting. Yeah, I, I, it's worth catching up with if you're curious, but. It is not a forgotten classic. It's a forgotten gem. Very good, very good. I'm also going to say trash, but in the gentlest terms. It's 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 interesting. It's worth watching, but it's not worth buying. Uh, and so I am with you, my dear friends and co-hosts, uh, regarding that. Now, as we move and wrap all things up, Dalton, can you say words to about... Uh, to about? Mm-hmm. Words... Uh, see, I finally did flub up a little bit just because it's been so long. We had such a good run. How do we have this conversation? Uh, with the internet, usually, uh, right. unfortunately, uh, under the watchful eye of uh, Big Brother. Uh, that's right, listener. You can keep this conversation going online. You can go to Twitter at Good Trash Media. Uh, you can email us, Good Trash at gmail.com. If you really got something itching away at your fingers, uh, you got to get it all on paper and you, you need as much space to do it as you need. The email is probably the place to do it. Uh, we're on the platforms where, of, at which you can subscribe to us. 
Uh, as of this recording, we're not on Spotify, but you know maybe that'll be rectified soon. Uh, we are on uh, iTunes. We're on Stitcher. You know how to do things. You've listened to a podcast before. You can rate and review all the things that'll make you feel good. It'll make us feel like you like us. Uh, parasocial relationships, blah, blah, blah. Uh, what else? Uh, oh, yeah. While you're over at Good Trash Media, uh, whether it's uh, just the Twitter account or GoodTrashMedia.com, check out some of uh, our friends' shows. Uh, go check out The Praise Down with Heath and Alex. They've been doing some really fun stuff. They are, uh, as of this recording, still working on their uh, their Pure Flix uh, discussion exploration i I watched uh episode two of christian sons of anarchy with them you guys know about this show it's got uh the uh, the younger swayze in it uh in in a supporting role yeah interesting it's weirdly pretty good it's not a bad tv show uh so we we talked i was on that episode that was fun uh you can check that out uh check out the wheel of randy uh dan wade's got new episodes coming out uh he's got some good ones he got andy kindler that andy kindler to uh to do a little uh, stinger form, which is pretty cool. Uh, anyway, uh, I think that's all I can think about that's social media uh, related. Oh, and, and one more big thanks to uh, our pr- patron, Brigham Cole, for this good selection and for helping us keep the lights on. Thanks, Brigham. Uh, and on the note of where to find us, you can also find us on Bezos Music, I mean, Amazon Music Prime uh, as well. Oh, we are? Yeah. Oh, well, that's cool. Yeah, we're over there now as well. Well, good. So uh, if that's your uh, player of choice. Wow. CEO, entrepreneur, born in 1964. Look at him go. Whew. All right, then. Well, um, I think it's time to wrap this thing up, but I guess Arthur needs to tell us what we're doing next. Uh, I can do that. Uh, where are they at? There we are. Uh, well, next week we lighten the mood as we head out west because we're going to be cowboys, baby, as we watch City Slickers. Nice. Very I, cool. I, I, I'll be sure to bring my chaps. All right, so sounds good. You keep watching, we'll keep talking, and we'll see you all next time. I'm not afraid. I'm not afraid.